Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill, called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came down near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. All right. It's the word of God for the people of God. And everyone said, thanks be to God. Thanks, Christine. Y'all can be seated. Well, as our kids helped us remember, uh, today is Holy Week, or this week, uh, today begins Holy Week. Uh, Palm Sunday kicks the whole thing off. And in this week, year after year after year, we do a rerun. Every year we tell the same story. And we repeat this story annually because it's important. But precisely because we repeat it annually, we forget why it's important. And it's not unlike in the civic calendar where you've got days like Memorial Day and Labor Day, and there's a lot of history represented there, a lot of struggle and sacrifice represented there. But in time, these days that we commemorate annually become for many, like thinking Labor Day and Memorial Day, just occasions to close the bank. Or a day when, you know, lucky enough at the beginning of the school year, you might get off school or you might get off work. These, these days, uh, when we forget the meaning of them, they often pick up additional meaning that the, the founders didn't intend to encode into them. And so Christmas picks up some unusual practices. Christmas picks up elves on shelves. You're like, where was that in Matthew and Luke? I don't really remember that. Easter picks up rabbits that lay eggs. Don't really know where that one came from. St. Patrick's Day picks up getting drunk and running 5Ks. It's a Celtic thing, I think. I'm not sure. 
We repeat these days, days like this, annually because they're important, but precisely because we repeat them annually, we forget the reason they're important. In the week of Holy Week, beginning with Palm Sunday, leading to Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, Holy Saturday and Easter Sunday are central, they're, they're pivotal, they're integral to us as believers because in those days, God in Christ won for us our salvation. And because the events and the actions and the behaviors of Jesus on these days serve for us as a kind of interpretive key for the whole of Christianity, if you want to understand the story of God, the the, the whole Bible, if you want to understand the way of Jesus, you do well to learn this story. These days tie us into all that God has been doing since the breaking of the world. It anchors us in our past These days also give us a foretaste of all that shall be at its remaking. They give us hope for the future. And these days also equip us to patiently endure and look with hope for God's kingdom that's breaking in on the here and now and the present. And so like the people of Israel sleeping in tents to keep the story alive in their family at that time when they were wandering in the wilderness or how the people of Israel will gather to share the Passover meal to remember how God led them out of slavery in Egypt, we gather annually to retell the story of Jesus and let it once again reorient our minds and reclaim our allegiance. And so picture the scene as Jesus is beginning to enter the city of Jerusalem. He's come from the east. He's been in Jericho a couple of chapters ago. He's made his way through the Judean wilderness. He goes up the Mount of Olives. Later in the week, he'll be in the Garden of Gethsemane and there praying his guts out to his father before Judas comes and betrays him with a kiss. And as he crests the hill, he overlooks the city from the east and there filling up his view is the temple. And as Jesus is entering Jerusalem, he's acting out some cultural norms that would have been visible to the disciples and the people alive at the time, but may be invisible to us. Luke, the evangelist in his gospel, is helping us to see that Jesus is making a formal procession into the city, not unlike Alexander the Great may have done, or Antiochus Epiphanes may have done, or when Julius Caesar entered a city that he was claiming as his own. Ancient historians tell us that when a ruler like one of these would enter into a city, there was a kind of social ritual for formalizing the acquisition of that place under that ruler. It began by the ruler being escorted into the city by the citizenry. So the people would actually go out of their city to welcome this king or this ruler in, and they would escort the king or the ruler into the city. It's kind of like when I go to my mom and dad's house, Every time without fail, we get in the driveway and my dad, who most Sundays is out of town this weekend, is greeting at the front door. Most days when I pull in the driveway, dad is going to be at the car as we are getting out and they're going to welcome us into the house. I'm so blessed. I really am. But the, the, the citizens would do this in welcoming their new ruler. The second thing that would happen is the procession of the king was often accompanied by these hymns or acclamations of the greatness of this new king or ruler. Hail Caesar, the people would shout out together. Thirdly, there were always actions taken to symbolically depict the power of the ruler. 
So in kind of unspoken social behaviors, they would do things that would confer honor or lend authority and credibility to this ruler. So in the case of Alexander the Great, when he was entering Jerusalem in the great period of Hellenization, Alexander entered the city and the high priest went to him as he rode on his steed and offered him a hand and walked with him hand in hand into the city, giving this kind of blessing by the deity of the new ruler. And then finally, the entrance is often followed by what we could call a ritual of appropriation, signifying the ruler's claim over the city. And often this ritual of appropriation was uh, was formalized in animal sacrifice. And there was a way of saying the deity is good with this new arrangement. The sacrifice demonstrated that the god or the gods was blessing the enthronement of this new king over the city. And we see this same ritual, social ritual, acted out in the text. So, verse 37. When Jesus came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, so just on the crest of the Mount of Olives, going down the Kidron Valley and into the city, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. So the crowd of disciples meet him, and they're welcoming him into the city. The people receive him from the mount, and Jesus is doing exactly what many of them had hoped he would do for a really long time. Do you remember those moments in the Gospels where it said people were going to take Jesus by force and make him king, but he walked through the crowd? He's, he's developed quite a following in the last couple of years, and, and no surprise, he's healed people who dealt with issues for 38 years. The woman with the issue of blood, 12 years. The the 12-year-old who died raised them from the dead. Do you remember the guy in the Gadarenes on the other side of the Sea of Galilee who was in the tomb and he'd cut himself? What freaked him out more than anything was seeing him in his right mind when Jesus exercised the demons. And that guy who they'd been following all these years is now running for president. This is what they're all imagining. Like the welcoming of a new Caesar, the people make acclamations of praise as Jesus enters. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is kind of like the song of the angels to the shepherds earlier in Luke's gospel. There's a kind of cosmic salvation they feel like is going on. Similarly, in in the telling of the story by Luke, there are elements present that symbolically depict the power of Jesus. And these come primarily in the way of allusions to stories in the Old Testament where Jesus is acting out things that people would have recognized in the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, one One of the most prominent sources of imagery comes from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. The prophet Zechariah spoke the words of the Lord saying, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion! Shout, daughter Jerusalem! See, your king comes to you! Righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. God is saying, I am making war a thing of the past. The battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus enters the city not riding a war horse, but riding a humble donkey, symbolizing he's coming in a time of peace. 
It calls to mind also Genesis chapter 49, if you can remember the end of the book of Genesis, where Jacob has called together his 12 sons and he's about to go the way of all the earth. He's about to die, and before he does it, he gives this, these prophetic blessings over each of his boys. And curiously, he says to his son Judah, of his son Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. It gives me chills. It says, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. It's a vision, again, of the, of the donkey being tied up on a vine. It's a vision of peace, and it's a vision of excess. They've got so much wine, they're washing their clothing in it. But even this image would be repurposed in the fullness of time when they understood what God was doing in Jesus. His garments would not be washed with wine, but with His own blood. And then we see in Psalm 118, they've repurposed this hymn for pilgrims coming to worship in Jerusalem. It made it into a hymn for the king said, this is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I'll give you thanks for you've answered me. You've become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let's rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. This is Hosanna. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see how they changed this psalm. Blessed is the king. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God. He's made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. These allusions that Jesus, from the Old Testament that Jesus is fulfilling lend credibility, believability that something big is happening here. And the scene looks like, in everyone's imagination, everyone anticipates what's coming next. Jesus is about to stake his claim over the city of Jerusalem, but then two unexpected things happen that deviate from the script. And the first is that the Pharisees object. Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Like, Jesus, what they're doing is not good. And it's a moment of juxtaposition where you have the joy and the rightness of what the crowd of disciples are saying and the people who have been entrusted with the law. Now, the people who are entrusted with the things of God oppose the disciples' action because they don't want Jesus to be king over them. If I had time, I'd go into a parable that Jesus tells immediately before this text about a king who went away on a journey to be enthroned and then returned to find some of his servants rejecting his reign. And there, was, there would be justice and vindication for the king over those wicked servants. The second thing, the second way in which the script changes contrary to expectations is Jesus' emotional affect. In this moment where you think he's blushing, you think he's flattered, he weeps. And Jesus knows that the obstinance and the idolatry embodied by the Pharisees here and, and the way that the zealots, for example, are projecting these hopes onto him that don't align with his own sense of calling, he knows that all of that's going to be consequential. 
and thinking of what would happen 40 years from then in the years 67 to 70 AD, it says this of Jesus in Luke 19. It says, as he approached the city, he wept over it and said, if you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. Because within a generation, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground, you and your children within the walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And he weeps. Imagine if you were... Uh, able to transport and travel in time to, to the feet of, time, of the Twin Towers on September 10th, 2001. And imagine knowing what would happen the next day and the loss of human life and the carnage that would be wreaked on the whole planet, the suspicion and the fear and the doubt that would be sown into all of our hearts, the way that that day would alter time for many of us, that there would be pre-9-11 and post-9-11, you would have to weep knowing what was to come. And Jesus, knowing what was to come, wept on that day. Now, I think there's another reason that as Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives and he's got a good view of the whole crowd, I think that there's another reason that he weeps. The Gospel of John the Evangelist says that Jesus knew the heart of all people. And he knows that the numerical size and the energy of the crowd is misleading because they don't all want the same thing and they certainly don't all want what he wants. The zealots are all hoping that Jesus is about to storm the capital and oust the oppressors and restore the greatness of Israel. The Pharisees who've been so blinded by a kind of religiously flavored perfectionism are hoping that he'll just shut up so that he doesn't upset the status quo. The Romans are fine with the whole spectacle as long as they really appreciate that Caesar is actually the one in charge. The masses are largely indifferent other than those who are like, may have heard, I think he's going to pass out food again like he did with the 3,000 and with the 5,000. And then you've got the disciples who think they're in the moment and, and rightly understand what's going down. And they, they should, having been warned three times what was going to go down when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem. And we know exactly how the week would play out for all of them. Jesus weeping on the donkey is maybe one of my, my favorite mental images of him. It's not the only place that Jesus is moved emotionally. It makes me think of Matthew 9. Jesus is, I think, an introvert and trying to go recharge with the disciples for a little bit, and he can't find any peace or quiet. The, the crowds are following him everywhere, and it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Makes me think of when Jesus was having a conversation with the rich young ruler, and he's about to tell him, go and sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor. But before he does, the text tells us he saw, he looked at the man, and he loved him. He's like, oh, I don't know if you're going to be able to accept this. I see what an idol, how the idol of, of mammon has such a grip on your heart, but I love you. Makes me think too in a couple of pages how Jesus will be on the cross and 
having been whipped and mocked and spat on and hit and his beard pulled and crucified and lifted up, you know, wearing little for all to see, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. They're on the Mount of Olives and they're looking on the crowds and they're looking at the rich young ruler and they're hanging on the cross. He looks on people with compassion and he weeps for them because he loves them. He says, if only you knew the stuff that actually made for peace. Now, sometimes in life, people are genuinely evil. And in dealing with evil people, you need lawyers and police and guns. But oftentimes, it's not that we're evil. More often, I think we're just simply foolish and we're trying our best. All those people on Palm Sunday thinking they know what they're doing and finding themselves justified in their actions were doing the best they could, but in reality, like me and many of us, we're just foolish. Uh, John Cleese of Monty Python has this bit, please forgive me, uh, and if you're in the room and you are a child, don't use the word stupid. Don't say it. I'm going to use it, but you should never use it, okay? John Cleese, I think, insightfully said, Many people are so stupid that they have no idea how stupid they are. If you're very, very stupid, how could you possibly realize that you're very, very stupid? You'd have to be relatively intelligent to realize how stupid you are. There's a wonderful bit of research that's pointed out that in order to know how good you are at something requires exactly the same skills as it does to be good at that thing in the first place. Which means that if you're absolutely no good at something at all, then you lack exactly the skills that you need to know that you're absolutely no good at it. Now, if we were to reinterpret this through, you know, biblical, you know, biblical perspective, we could re safely replace stupid with foolish, good with wise, and we could acknowledge that we are too foolish too often to see how foolish we really are. And as Jesus rides into town on the donkey, he sees the folly and the mixed motivations of the crowd, and he knows where this folly will lead them, and he knows its consequences. And because he loves them, he weeps for them. If only they knew what made for peace. I love Psalm 19. Psalm 19 begins with this nature imagery. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They, there is no sound. They have no voice. And yet their voice goes to the ends of all the world. It's really pretty. And then it hard shifts to talking about the, the Scriptures. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. And then in this moment of reflection at the end of the psalm, it says, but who can discern their own error? If you're foolish, you're not wise enough to know that you're foolish. Uh, I've been learning the Anglican Catechism with a friend in the church, and, and I really love this question and answer pair it says, do you have the power to save yourself? I want you to read the answer with me. No, I do not have the power to save myself, for sin has confused my mind, corrupted my conscience, and captured my will. Only God can save me. I've been memorizing this over the last couple of months along with a bunch of other questions and answers, and this one in particular helps make sense of myself and helps make sense of my relationship with other people, what I, how, how I see us living. 
We're not evolving and adapting as a human race toward peace. Why is that? It feels like by now we'd figure out the way that life works best. You have to think, have we not appreciated the irony that the centuries following the Enlightenment, where we all finally turned our brains on, were some of the bloodiest centuries in human history? And it suggests to us that on our own, as a species, we have not yet demonstrated that we intuitively know or understand what makes for peace. Henry Cloud, the author and psychologist, says that with wise people, you talk to them, and when you point out their errors, talking helps because they're receptive and they're learners and they're curious, but with fools, talking doesn't make problems go away. With fools, talking doesn't help, and what you need in in dealing with fools is boundaries and consequences and at times direct intervention. Jesus knows that the time for speech is long past, and so as He stands before His accusers, His lips are sealed. He knows that Judas is going to betray. He knows that Peter is going to deny. He knows that the rest will scatter. He knows that the Pharisees will condemn. He knows that the Sadducees will conspire, and He knows that the Romans will play their power game. He knows that the time for talking is past and now is the time for boundaries and for consequences and for divine intervention. Now, I spoke a couple of weeks ago about those times where you feel like God is distant and many of us have gone through a dark night of the soul where it feels like God's not taking our calls. And that's one variety of that, that experience, but there is another. And if you ever feel like God has stopped speaking to you, it may well be that He's tried and He's learned that you're unwilling to listen. He's like, only life can teach them now, life and circumstances. As Jesus nears the temple, everyone is expecting Him to take the last step of this acquisition of the city. Everyone's expecting him to stake his claim on Jerusalem by going into the temple and offering his sacrifice. But when he enters the temple, he doesn't offer a sacrifice. Instead, he takes prophetic action against the temple by kicking out the moneylenders, by driving out the cattle and indicting its leadership for turning his father's house of prayer into a profiteering scheme. And the people wonder where is the sacrifice? Where is the ritual whereby he'll stake his claim on the city and enact his reign? And the sacrifice was not forgotten. It was only delayed and by his choice. The sacrifice would be offered, but it would not be offered in the temple of Jerusalem. Instead, it would be offered outside the walls of the city. And Jesus knew for him, considering his master's commission, it was too small a thing to claim just one city. God had a much larger vision in mind. And so fulfilling the prophet Isaiah says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. No, I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Jesus was indeed coming to be a king, but not a king in the way that they would expect. And he was coming to make a sacrifice, but not the sacrifice of his own body. He would indeed make his great ascent to the throne, but his ascent would first be on a hill called Golgotha. And there he would give his life for the life of the world. 
And on the cross, Jesus would expose the utter folly and lostness of humankind. That we are so lost that we would kill the only one who had the power to save us. And do not be deceived. Were his incarnation in the 21st century and not the first, we'd find a way to kill him too. To our own horror and dismay, we'd find our own voices joining the choir shouting, crucify, crucify. We too would abandon him. We too would scatter when the empire dropped its hammer against him because our minds are confused and our consciences have been corrupted and our wills have been captured because we do not on our own know the things that make for peace. John the Evangelist in John chapter 1 said, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who would receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, to those who would receive him. As a church community and as believers all over the world reenact and live through the story again through the lens of Holy Week, I want to invite you to receive the Lord Jesus again. I want you to journey with Him through this week, and I want you to watch Him. Watch Him in that moment of great paradox as He weeps as the crowds hail Him as King. Watch him as he cleanses the temple and consider, might he want to do some cleaning in the temple of my own heart? Are there idols or ways in which I've gone astray? Watch him as he stoops to wash Judas's feet, Peter's feet, Bartholomew's feet. Watch him as he weeps in the garden and he prays for us. Watch him as he quietly endures the suffering and the punishment that is ours, that was meant to be ours And watch and consider what he does even on Saturday as he rests and he goes to the abode of the dead. We'll talk about that next Saturday. And watch him also as he walks from the tomb, clothed in immortality, the firstborn from the dead. I urge you as you journey with him through the week and as you receive him yet again to ask him to lead your feet and to lead your heart and to lead your mind and to lead our church into the way of peace. As we get ready to receive communion, I want to invite you to reflect on this story and and, and how it comes to bear on our church community and on your life. And thinking about how Jesus saw the great crowds that had gathered on that day, I want you to remember that numerical growth is deceptive. And as you think about our church, I want you to consider, prayerfully consider, do we all want the same things? Some of us may have come in just sheer desperation and like the people who've gone hungry asking Jesus for loaves and fish, they're like, just throw me a bone. And that's an okay place to start. If you're in just a spot of desperation, just ask for help. That's a good spot to be. But some of us may be asking the Lord Jesus just to baptize and bless our way of life that's out of alignment with the values of his kingdom and that he cannot abide. And to those of us for whom that's true in ways in each of our lives for which that's true, he would invite us to repent. Do we all want the same things? I think what Jesus is after is a community of apprentices, people who would sit at his feet as his students saying, just tell me what to do. Tell me what's true. 
And I just urge you to pray for our church and pray that that would be true of us. You know, every couple of years, a new church starts in Tulsa and things grow. Oh, gosh, I don't want to grow without growing as disciples. I'd rather we shrink. If, it, if growing in faithfulness means, means shrinking, I'm great with that. I'd be terrified of growing in numbers and losing our soul. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There is no true fruitful future for us apart from abiding in Him. Do we all want the same thing? Is that our ambition? Another thing I might invite you to consider is, is have you come to grips with your own folly? I know in the 12-step world, there's the language of your best thinking got you here. Sometimes we, we don't understand our own folly, but we can just survey the evidence. Why are all these people mad at me all the time? Or we just see the, the state that our life is in and we say, I may not get it, but I believe it because I see the evidence. Maybe we need to come to grips with our own folly and simply ask the Lord Jesus, I need your help. I can't dig my way out of this hole. I'm in the dark. And the third thing I would invite you to consider is, is I'd ask you, have you received the Lord Jesus as the king of your life? Are you at peace? Are you learning to walk in the way of peace? And it could be that some of you, yes, if probably most of you did this ages ago, but there may be someone or maybe some people in this room, you've never pledged your allegiance to Jesus as the king of your life. And you'd say perhaps in a season of desperation or regret on the other side of destructive choices, I can't, you know, sh I can't lead myself to the way of peace, so I need you, Lord Jesus, to establish your rule in my life. And I think as inelegantly and simply as, as you can, express that to the Lord. I need you to help me and to save me and to direct me. And one of the most beautiful and central ways that we get to receive him again and again as king, as followers of Jesus, is when we receive Holy Communion. The church calls a communion a sacrament. And in the ancient world, a sacrament was understood to be like an oath of loyalty that a citizen would pledge to their king. Over my dead body, I'll help build your kingdom. But in the revelation of Jesus Christ, the, the notion of a sacrament has been flipped on its head. No longer do the citizens offer their lives to win over the king or to build his kingdom, but in Jesus' kingdom, he said, I would, I would establish my new family over my own dead body. And he offers us his own life. He nourishes us on himself. And in response to the first action that he takes, we respond with our own sacrament of loyalty, but he always has the first word in the conversation. And the first word for us is always thank you. So as we get ready to receive communion, friends, I invite you to pray with me. And Jesus, as we are here today, we're acknowledging how deeply we need you. At every level of our existence, things mismatch our hopes and expectations. Even at moments of our deepest joy, we can also find ways in which the good that you intended has been perverted and twisted and there are little pangs of, of, of challenge in our hearts. I pray, Lord Jesus, first for your people all over the world, for the church of Jesus Christ, whether it's here in Tulsa at Battle Creek or St. Mary's or Southern Hills Baptist. I pray for your people all throughout the city of Tulsa and the world. 
Lord Jesus, that you would give us grace to faithfully follow you and receive you as king. Forgive us for the ways in which we've tried to recast you in our own image and make you the champion of our ideals that, are, that you do not share. I pray that you transform and change our hearts. Help us to be humble. Help us to be hungry for your words, to rely on everything that you say, to be people who have the grace to remain in you as you remain in us. I very rarely do something like this, but keeping your eyes closed, I would just say, if, if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus in response to how he's given his life for you, and you want to just say, like, I need help, Jesus, I want to live under your reign, your rule, I just invite you to raise your hand. I'm not going to call you down, I'm not going to embarrass you, but if you've never invited Jesus to reign over your life, just raise your hand and say, I need some help, help me. Jesus, I pray for those uh, in whose hearts you're working and pray that you'd give them the grace, whether it's now or later, to say, I want to move in greater measure into the heart of your kingdom, Lord. And for all of us, Jesus, as we come and receive Holy Communion, may you take this ordinary bread and juice and make it be for us so much more than that, but a means by which through the Holy Spirit we experience the power and the presence of the risen Christ who is our King. This we pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.